Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And Brenna, we are doing another full length episode, which means we get to talk about. No. (laughs) You said it last week. I listened back. You know what? You caught me once. It was a moment of weakness. I regret everything. We're reading an Antipodean classic of YA, I believe. I'm sorry. What was that word again? Antipodean? I've only ever read it. Australian? (laughs) (laughs) I've only ever read it. I think it refers to like Australia, New Zealand, like everything in in that bit of the world. Oh, I see. Okay. Mm. Listeners, yes. don't don't tell me if I mispronounced it. I won't remember that you said anything. Fair and enough. Joe, <laughs> so we're looking for Alibrandi this week. I really enjoyed it, actually. I, I think that I missed a lot. That's what I'm going to say off the top. Oh, interesting. I felt like this was a really universal text, and I liked the book a lot. The movie, I was a little lukewarm on. I feel the same way. Yeah. But before we get into digging into them, I know we're not really doing homework anymore on these regular soaps mm-hmm. but i have to tell you and the listener something in case it comes up in the podcast this is fair i will allow it <laughs> so i got a cat <laughs> <laughs> you got a kitten i got a kitten so yesterday we've been looking for a while so my beloved wait you've been looking for kitten <laughs> kitten brandy um my my beloved 15 year old boys passed away a year apart uh, about Two and a half and one and a half years ago now, and it's been like... To clarify, Brenna is talking about a cat that I has passed, not cats. a 15-year-old child. <laughs> no, that's... All right, fine. It's, it's Im- important. I just don't want people to be like, oh my God, Brenna has a child that died that we didn't know about. So no, this is your beloved feline. Yes, son. my beloved feline companions. And they... We've been without them now for, I guess, a year and a half, and my toddler asks all the time about getting a cat and so Aww. we've been keeping like half an eye on the spca website and yesterday we were out for lunch and i was trolling the spca website and this little guy came up he's eight months old and he's in need of a home with kids because he's super high energy because he's been wildly understimulated because as near as they can figure he's basically been locked in a bathroom his whole life uh. i know but he's so friendly and sweet this morning his purr just kicked in I'm only telling all of you this because we're in that stage of orienting a cat to a house where he has to stay in one room. And the one room is also the room where I record the podcast. And so right now he's sitting curled up in the chair being very good. But uh, he's a kitten. So that could change in a heartbeat. So if you hear like a lot of things falling to the ground or swearing or loud purring and Joe can't cut it out, that's what's happening at my house. Yeah, and some of that may be cat-related, and some of it may just be Brenner-related. It's true. It's true. Anyway, so just a heads up for the listeners. If you are on my Twitter, you've already seen several pictures of Georgie. Very cute. Yeah. Very adorable. (laughs) All right, Joe, this actually is a listener request episode, is it not? It is, yes. So I want to give a shout-out to Emily from Tasmania, who recommended looking for Alibrandi to us all the way back in July of last year. So, Emily, thank you so much for putting up with our nonsense. (laughs) I responded four days after you wrote in to say, thank you, yes, we'll put it on the list, and we are only now getting to it. In fairness, we program very far in advance because we 
both think of things we want to talk about and then add them to the list. And now that we're only doing a regular sode every second week, yes, the list is very long. So that's, listeners should know that we are very grateful for recommendations and suggestions, but that it can take a little while for us to get to them. Yes, and we do try to give them a little bit more priority. Yes, we do. I don't want to excuse the fact that we've been very delinquent on this request, but... It's hard to find. Well, yes. Okay, so... <laughs> Yeah, so I guess we'll apologize more broadly to listeners if you've had difficulty tracking down the book or particularly the film. This was a challenge. I think at the end of last week's episode, I actually suggested that this movie was available on Canopy. It definitely looked like it was available on Canopy, Joe. You weren't making it up. So if people don't know, Canopy is a free streaming service that's attached to most public libraries. So all you need to do is have a library card and then you can stream a bunch of documentaries and films and typically they're really good for things like national cinema because these are the kinds of films that struggle to get an audience at the best of times so your library is kind of like hey consume this Canadian content consume this Australian content it's good for your soul and in this case they said here's a preview (laughs) you are not in the right region (laughs) haha suckers the best part was that so I um had thought I had Canopy but my public library does not have Canopy in fact the entire BC library system does not seem to be subscribed to Canopy get on it disappointing super disappointing but the university has canopy so then i went and i was like "Ooh, what are my options on the university's canopy account there's three documentaries (laughs) wow yeah really swinging for the fences there (laughs) exactly so i was like joe what am i gonna do i don't have canopy and then joe writes back and he's like well funny story So I went on Canopy because I had seen this preview. And then, yes, it tells me that I'm not in the right region. I assume the region is Australia that I need to be in. I'm guessing. Not helpful, Canopy. (laughs) Much spiraling ensued at that point. Then I discovered I was able to find one, one illegal torrent. So I apologize to the cast and crew of Looking for Alibrandi. I literally could not support your film except to pirate it yeah there's no way to buy like you can't buy it on youtube you can't buy it on itunes you can't like there's 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 no way for north americans to see this legally that we could find no yeah so if people were unable to find the film i apologize you can find a number of clips and it's worth checking out the clips i think um especially if you've read and liked the book yes Yeah, so I apologize that people struggled to participate in this week's discussion. Rest assured that we, as always, will be covering both the book and the film, and we'll try to do our best to address the major issues. If you can find the film, it is worth checking out, particularly if you like the book. I will say, however, though, if you can only find one, find the book. book. Yeah, we both really enjoyed the book. Really liked the book. But do you want to read our uh, listener... We had two listeners write in about this book, right? So we did. So I'll read you Emily's initial email from back in July. So she says, I thought about another book movie you might enjoy covering. It's called Looking for Alibrandi. I'm not sure whether it's widely read in Canada, but here in Australia, it's a seminal coming of age novel that many students read in high school. Mm. It's about a third generation Italian Australian girl on scholarship at a private school in Sydney. It's about family and class and to what extent they defined you. It is a joy to read and really tugs at the heartstrings. Melina Marchetta was only 19 when she started to write it. What? Yeah, so she wrote this very young, 
from what I've been able to gather. So just to clarify, Emily, this is a literally unknown book yes. in Canada. Yes. Never heard of this book no. until you wrote in. So thank you so much for the suggestion because we would never have discovered it otherwise. No, we would not. And I'm so glad we did. Yeah. And uh, the big thing about this book is that I don't know if it's just because we don't live in Australia, but it was actually really difficult to find information about this. So mm -hmm. like I would find a source and then be unable to corroborate whether or not it was true. So there's a really mysterious piece of trivia that I'll bring up later about the main actress uh, who plays Josephine and... I wanted to dig into it and find out more about it, but I couldn't because that was the only place that it was referenced on the internet. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Very, very odd. So Emily wrote in in July to ask for that. And then just last week, we actually got an email from another Australian listener, Jane from Canberra. And she said that she is very excited that we are reading Looking for Ella Brandy this week. And she clarified that she hadn't read it before, but that she was very excited to hear Australia get a mention. <laughs> she actually apologized to us because she said there's some pretty intense Australian accents in the movie, <laughs> which I thought was very fun. I love that because it's such a universally Commonwealth experience to be like, oh, they mentioned us. <laughs> Really? Yeah. We're all so polite. Canadians do it all the time. I remember in the 90s when like the first time that Canada had like a, an extended cameo on The Simpsons and it was literally on the news. Like it was mm -hmm. literally news. <laughs> yeah. We are newsworthy because we have appeared on The Simpsons. Yeah. It's a strange thing living in the Commonwealth, but yes. Well, it's our inherent inferiority complex, right? We live in the shadow of giants. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine because listeners, in case you don't no, or if I haven't mentioned it in a while, I did live in Australia for about a year and a half. Yes, I was going to draw on your Australian expertise today. I will try. There was a couple of fun things where I was like, oh, I get this reference, and I don't know if Breno will. Yay! <laughs> but it's kind of interesting that Emily is writing in from Tasmania, because Tasmania sometimes feels like they are deliberately excluded from the rest of Australia mm -hmm. because they are their own separate island. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, if we have any New Zealand listeners, they often feel like Canada does in relationship to the U.S. Yes. because they are smaller than Australia. So And more progressive. It's just a big series of inferiority complexes. It's turtles all the way down, Joe. No. <laughs> I was thinking about, I wondered if Looking for Alaska as a title was modeled on Looking for Alabrandi. I also wondered that, yeah, because as soon as you start to put in looking YA, yeah. a looking for Alaska is the one that comes up, but then the two titles are so similar. They're so similar. I mean, the, the narrative conflicts are not quite the same, although they do have the same broad scope yeah. in terms of they're trying to address a bunch of different issues in a single text. Private school context. We should also point out a trigger warning off the top. There is a suicide that we'll be talking about. A suicide occurs yes. in the book and the film. We'll mm -hmm. be talking about those. Yeah. And yeah, there were just some ways in which I was like, huh, I wonder if he knew about this book and sort of cribbed the title as a little bit of an illusion. Who knows? No. Who yeah. Knows? So Brenna, yeah. what is Looking for Alibrandi all about? Okay, cool. I actually, I, at some point I want, do want to talk about the title because I don't understand it, but... Okay. So the, it tells the story of uh, Josephine Alibrandi. In fact, you know what? I don't think we've said the author, have we? Melina Marchetta is the author. And this book came out in 1992. And for our fans of the 90s, this is a gloriously 90s book. Mm. 
Lovely. The fashion, the slang, yep. even outside of a North American context, you know that it's the 90s. The hair, all of it. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So definitely just a heads up. I know some of you are big 90s fans. Yeah. <laughs> so this novel follows our hero, Josephine Alibrandi. And yes, she's a third generation Australian-Italian woman, young woman. Her mother was born in Australia, but her grandmother was not. And she's really kind of living this life of trying to be the girl that her Italian her Italian Australian family feels she should be and uphold their Catholic values and uphold their sense of like what femininity is but she also wants to fit in with people in Australia yeah like she she wants to be Australian yes. in quotation marks because of course she's got a foot in each world exactly and she wants to be seen as Australian instead of being seen as quote unquote an ethnic which is what people call her regularly Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of ethnic slurs yeah. being hurled around here. And she very much wants to be, if she's going to be called anything other than Australian, she wants to be acknowledged as being Italian or at least be called European rather than this yes. sort of generic and minimizing term of an ethnic. The whole book takes place for the most part in Sydney, except for a little foray to Adelaide. Mm-hmm. Which is not little, by the way. <laughs> Those are two different states, which are equivalent to provinces here in Canada. So it's a big deal when her father takes her to his home state. And she's never been, like, she's never left Sydney before. That's the other thing, right? So this is the first time she's ever seen any other city. Um, But Sydney is very much a character in the novel. Mm -hmm. The different sort of class dynamics of the different suburbs and the different regions play into a lot of what's happening in the text. Um, So she lives in Glebe. And she should go to, like, the local high school in Glebe, but she goes to a private school in, like, a tonier area of town. So she's always kind of constantly crossing borders, like, whether it's class borders at school or these sort of cultural borders with her family and her friends. She's always trapped by these cliques and social politics. Yes. But she herself is super sassy and smart she's spunky she's so I like her. spunky i like her a lot anyway so her life gets kind of thrown into this strange new space she's always been she's been raised by a single mother and her mother has never actually told anyone in the family who her father is so she's kept the secret of the boy who got her pregnant when she was 17 but at the opening of the novel that man now a man uh michael andretti uh reappears and <laughs> Incidentally, Michael Andretti is the name of like a race car driver. (laughs) Oh, really? Interesting. (laughs) And so at the beginning of when she was like, oh, your father is Michael Andretti. I was like, oh, that's hilarious. She's like making a joke like, oh, your father, your father's like this (laughs) famous celebrity. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, no, that's actually the guy's name. Um, So Michael Andretti uh, returns. And at first he tries to keep his distance, but eventually he realizes he wants a relationship with Josie. And she has to navigate that. She uncovers some pretty damning family secrets about her grandmother and a love affair that her grandmother had in her youth that makes her grandmother's condemnation of her mother really super hypocritical. Oh, yeah, because you've not mentioned that the mother, Christina, was actually kicked out of their house when she became pregnant out of wedlock by her father. So they had a very strained relationship. No one in the family talked to Christina until after her father died and then her mother let her back in. Yes. Well, she had one, didn't she live with her sister or her aunt or something? Because that's why they're close, those two cousins. 
with Roberto. Yes, yeah. But other than that, she's had no con- she had no connection to the family until the grandfather died. And then in like her normal teenage personal life, Josie's got one boy. She's got a couple of boys. She's got a couple of boys. So there's John, who's like he's a private school boy. He's the son of a pol- a prominent politician. Uh, he's expected to sort of make something of himself, but he's really struggling with the idea of what his identity is going to look like. And then there's Jacob, who is uh, not a private school boy. He goes to the local public high school and he wants to be a mechanic. And so she's kind of got these two opportunities of these two different worlds that she tries on when she goes on dates with both of them. She's much more attracted to Jacob, but she really wants to maintain a close friendship with John because they're going to go to the same university. And so she has this tense relationship with Jacob because she wants to maintain a relationship with John. I'm intrigued. I always got the impression that she wanted to date John initially, and then she realized that they were better friends. I think she wanted to want to date John. Okay. Because she's supposed to want to date John. I see. Okay. That's what I think. And unfortunately, John is not able to imagine a future for himself outside of the incredibly strict parameters that his father has laid out he feels like if he's not constantly winning constantly striving constantly achieving that his father doesn't actually love him that his father only loves him when he's bringing home accomplishments yep. um and the night before this major series of exams that they're all about to sit at the end of their high school experience john ends his own life yeah and so josie is kind of overcome by a sense that like this guy who had all this privilege and all this opportunity he can't figure out a way to live in the world so how is she supposed to and Mm -hmm. she takes solace with her father whose relationship with her is becoming so much closer she works for him now and he wants to help sort of mentor her into becoming a lawyer she takes solace in her relationship with jacob who wants to help her see that there is a future that there is hope and that's really what the book is about the book is about her trying to put together all these pieces and develop something of an adult identity the book kind of opens as she's turning 17 and closes as she's turning 18 so it's sort of over the course of this very transformative year yeah there's a lot going a lot goes on, on in this poor girl's life in a single year. <laughs> and the only thing I want to add is that I really loved the ending because... Yes. Okay, so what happens at the end? Well, at the end, we have a very nice ambiguous ending, which as everyone knows is my fave. So <laughs> she hasn't decided for sure that she's necessarily going to be a lawyer. She knows she's going to go to university, but she's got a much greater sense of like exploration about her at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. And she and Jacob break up, which I think is super yep. duper appropriate. Yep. Yep. Emily did actually write back to remind us at one point that she was still hoping we would have <laughs> this book. Thank you, Emily. <laughs> and I think she mentioned that the ending of the film had been, she doesn't say defanged, I'm going to say defanged, yeah. but essentially it had been changed or altered to make it a more conventionally happy ending. So yep. of course, when we get to the film, we'll talk a little bit about the distinction, but it feels like the book is willing to make that risky move and then all of a sudden when you're talking about millions of dollars to put something onto the big screen that gets a little bit removed i felt like in general the film played it way too safe with some of the most interesting concepts in the book Mm -hmm. we won't talk about it yet but one of the things i think is most interesting in the book is the way that john's suicide is handled shocked is the wrong word i felt the lead up to it was quite clear like he's there's a scene in which he is very clearly saying goodbye to josie and she doesn't get it until it's too late i'll confess i did not i knew for sure that he 
was probably depressed and that he needed to be talking to someone mm-hmm. and that Josie was probably not the most Mm-mm. fitting person to be talking to because... She's not a mental health professional? Well, that... Yes. <laughs> but part of the issue is that... Hmm, you know, this is a first-person point-of-view book, right? So we're very much inside yes. Josie's head. And... and she's not entirely trustworthy in the way that all teenagers are not entirely trustworthy tellers of their own experience, because none of us are entirely trustworthy narrators of well, our own experience, right? That, and she's just so obviously sorting through her own issues, but she's not telling them to everybody. You know, each person in her life is getting a little piece of it. Yes. So... I wonder if John Barton thought, here's a good, strong, independently minded young Mm. woman. I can confess something to her that I can't other people. Mm -hmm. And he actually says, you know, like, I think he mentioned something about how he really feels that he can confide in her. He can tell Mm -hmm. her things that he can't tell other people, specifically his father. But part of me was just like, but you're still telling it to a teenage Teenage girl girl who's going through her own difficulties and issues. Well, that's the thing. And she doesn't really realize what he was trying to say to her until he's gone. So there's, there's a scene where they're both confessing their fears about this exam they're writing, this series of exams they're writing. And by the way, can I just say, every time I read a book set in either the UK with their O levels and A levels and GCSEs, or Australia with its this HSC thing or the mm-hmm. states with their SATs. I'm just grateful. I am so grateful that we are not a standardized testing country. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like it looks horrendous yeah. to have to just write these ridiculous exams that will determine your future. It's crazy. Back to back to back. Like in Canada, we certainly write like final exams in our last year of high school, but they are no more or less important than any other set of final exams. They don't contribute any exactly. more to your course grade than. No. And I guess maybe if you're taking an AP class, my high school didn't have them, so I'm not sure, but I think there might be an exam with that. But like. That would be advanced placement for people who don't know. Yes. But this whole idea of like you write this suite of tests or you write, God, in the States, this one test and like Mm -hmm. then you get a number and it's your life. I just, oh man, it's not many, it's not every day that I think that Canada does something really well in the education system, but not having those (laughs) I think is awesome. (laughs) Yes, it's true. I totally, I think I cut you off or I cut, oh yeah, so this is what I was going to say. So Mm -hmm. they're confessing their fears about this suite of exams they're about to write and they write to each other these confidential notes and they exchange them. So she, and she's, in the moment, she recognizes that something really powerful happened. Like she refers to this piece of paper that she's got as as John's soul. She's going to go put John Barton's soul somewhere safe. And yet, after he has ended his life, when she goes to read it, she can't even remember what she wrote on hers. Like, she doesn't remember what she told him. Which I thought was fascinating. I did too. So it's like this distinction between, like, you know, she's a dramatic girl. Like, she's constantly sort of dramatizing her own life in ways that are sometimes amusing and sometimes infuriating. Mm -hmm. And you realize in that moment that, like, that moment of sharing with John was a romantic experience that she wanted to, like... hold on to but it wasn't quote-unquote real for her in the same way that what he was experiencing was a real Mm -hmm. confession which is ironic then that she actually says oh i've got this piece of john's soul before she realizes what she actually has right yeah you know she thinks he's given me something of himself that's so intimate and personal and really that is what he's done. But to her, it wasn't the same thing, right? Like she probably talked about, oh, I'm going to go off to university and I'm going to study to become a barrister and all these other things. He was handing her a suicide note. 
it's deeply tragic. It's deeply tragic. And his, I mean, his whole arc is deeply tragic, right? Because he doesn't feel like he can tell anyone else how deeply he's struggling. He certainly can't tell his family, Mm -hmm. but he can't let it out at school either because at school he's like this model student, right? And he, he's representing the family and he's representing the family's political brand. And like, he is so profoundly trapped in other people's assumptions about him. I just find his story so sad. And mm-hmm. I just found, I don't know, the book is so good at, at lightly suggesting to us that John is in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And then when Josie finds out about his suicide, I thought that was just an exquisitely written chapter. That whole oh, thing. Yes. So she gets yeah. to school and Ivy, who she calls Poison Ivy, who is best <laughs> friends with John. And because she's dramatic. Because she's so dramatic. But Poison Ivy is weeping on the front steps. And she thinks that Josie already knows and they have this exchange and Josie finds out and Josie screams that she's a liar, that this is a horrible thing to lie about, this is a horrible thing to make jokes about. Yeah. And we, of course, as readers, know it we to know, be true. Because the scene prior is so clearly a goodbye. And I, I don't mean like I knew for ne- for sure the next page he was going to end his life. But when I turned the page and Ivy was crying, I didn't have any, I wasn't surprised, yeah. right? Yeah. And um so she runs into the school and she sees her friends and the nuns and she realizes it's true and she immediately runs to the bathroom and throws up, like throws up until there's nothing to throw up anymore. And I just thought the way it was written and the way that realization comes over her so slowly and then all at once was mm-hmm. very evocative. I really, I loved that chapter. We've read a lot of books that deal with teen suicide or suicidal ideation. We sure have. (laughs) Sorry. Most of them my picks. Um, But I think that this time in particular, the aftermath is so well handled and well articulated. Well, and and it's not exploitative. No, it's not. Like we've maybe experienced in some of these other texts. It sometimes feels like, what's the worst thing that I could do to a teenage character in YA? And it's make them confront the reality that their peers or themselves are going to die. And I will say, since you've raised Looking for Alaska... Oh, it's the clearest contrast. This deals with it in so much... Better. It's. Gentler. I don't want to say it's more mature. I think but it's gentler, it's and I think it's more responsible and more yeah. responsible. Yeah, I think you're right. I was thinking about that. I think that's why the title was echoing for me because mm-hmm. they are both books that are not about, but are have at their core this reaction to a suicide and particularly this reaction to the mortality of a peer. Mm-hmm. But and I think coveting a life that isn't entirely yes. your own and becoming comfortable with who you are as a result of dealing with, with a tragedy. The loss. Yes, yeah. I think so. And I think that John Green is so focused in looking for Alaska on the way in which a magical woman transforms a young man. Yep. That he misses some of the more honest emotional beats that Melina Marchetta gets at here. Yeah. What's interesting is that this episode with John Barton really affects her but it doesn't define her Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because she is living a full life that involves more than the romantic idealization of this one single person it doesn't change the entire scope of his life it doesn't change yeah anything you know i think it confirms to her that life is precious yes she has to be true to what she actually wants not what she thinks other people want of her yes and i think that it makes her realize that the failings in her own family 
are survivable in a way that the failings in John's family were not survivable for John. And I think that's the distinction that she takes away with it. But it's not like, well, now I'm devoting my life to finding out why he did it, like in Looking for Alaska, right? Oh my it's goodness. It's very much about like, this is a really terrible thing that happened and I'm extremely sad. Mm-hmm. And also I have to finish writing these exams and also I have a life to live. I loved that. Yes. Because I feel like if we had have seen this story in a more modern context or in a North American context, it would have been... Exams are canceled. Yeah, exams are canceled. And it would have been a little bit like the film where it's just now three months later. Yes, I loved that it's Because I don't want to do so the quickly. heavy lifting. It's like, no, she has a breakdown. And then she goes and she writes the exam and she doesn't remember any of it, but she still had to do it. Yep. Yep. And I think yeah. that those are incredibly important defining moments. So I had a high school senior year tragedy, as I think which a lot of people alluded to before. experienced, yeah. to, which I've alluded to before. Yeah. The girlfriend of a close friend was struck by lightning. They were both struck by lightning and she passed away. And it happened in the middle of our exam period. And the exams were not canceled. Like, no. I've read so many YA books where... The exams are canceled or like a grief counselor comes in and they, they don't do the finals or they do them later. Yeah. or they ha- All like, classes are canceled. And- <laughs> yeah, that was not my experience at all. And I, I'm sort of fascinated by the difficult narrative choice to insist on Josie going on. Mm-hmm. I think it's a braver narrative choice. And I think that I don't necessarily think it's like a healthier thing to make children do. <laughs> don't no, get me wrong. no. no. my senior year would have probably been much better defined by some time and space um but that said i don't think the time and space is actually realistically what a lot of kids get and i think that the narrative possibilities of insisting your protagonist soldier on are really interesting because part of what happens in looking for alaska part of why the back half of that novel sinks so dramatically is because they wallow so profoundly in a way that stops feeling honest or possible or emotionally something i could connect to Mm mm-hmm yeah. Yep. I agree. And I think in the case of looking for Alabrandi, what it does is it reinforces why the story with Hernona and her mother mm-hmm. is so important, right? Because mm-hmm. really, the book is doing three different simultaneous narratives. So there is the potential of a romantic relationship with Jacob and John Barton. Mm-hmm. There's the complicated family relationship and the ties to ethnicity and being an immigrant and class mm-hmm. that are involved in the relationship with her mom and her Nona. Mm-hmm. And then there's the new relationship with her father. And that obviously intertwines with the other two in different ways. And then once the John Barton stuff is resolved, for lack of a better word, we start to focus more on the relationship that she has with her father and also the kind of relationship that she wants to have with Jacob. Yes. And I feel like this book is doing so, so much. And it's balancing all of these storylines really well. We're not forgetting about characters and the dramas that they have. We're constantly touching base with all of these different things and kind of keeping them updated and seeing what has changed and how Josie is evolving through the process, because that's what real life is. 
Yes. You don't get to compartmentalize one part of your life and say like, oh, I'm not going to talk about this romantic relationship I'm having for two weeks, aka two chapters, because that's not how real life works. Like you're constantly interacting with friends, with loved ones, with family, and that's how you move forward in life. And that's what Josie does. Whereas in other texts that we've read, it feels like "Mm, that part of the narrative doesn't really fit with what I'm trying to do right now. I need to zero in on this other thing. And I just kind of love the way that Marchetta balances all of these competing storylines to keep them all evolving. She's a really good writer. She's a really good writer. <laughs> I, I had some qualms with it. You'll see on my Goodreads if you go and look that I, I found the dialogue difficult. But I also texted okay. Joe and I was like, I wonder if this is a first novel because it sounds like the dialogue of a first novel, which is to say, sometimes it sounds more like the way you wish people sounded than how people actually sound. Um, right. And some of that might be that it's a different ear, right? She's writing for an Australian audience. There's very likely different idiom that I'm I'm missing the nuance of too is totally mm-hmm. possible. In the 90s context. In the 90s context. But just in terms of the structure of this book, she's really good at doing exactly what you've described there. And it's really refreshing because, yeah, I do feel like we've had a lot of books where, like, it's often the thing that you and I find the most interesting in any given book is the is the thread the author decides to just, like, drop. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't have time for that particular thing right now. <laughs> I just really, I was very impressed by, I was very impressed by this book, especially as a debut book. I also, I have an interesting uh, trivia piece about this book. Okay, what have you got? This is the most stolen library book in Australia. Yeah, I saw that. And I think that's really interesting because if we if we go back to what Emily said in her first email, she said that this is a book that every high school student has to read. So I'm confused as to why you would then need to steal it unless it's so important that you wanted to have your own copy. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I think it's interesting, though. It made me kind of... Uh, it's one thing to say a book is sells well, right? Because the person mm-hmm. buying the book is probably an adult in a lot of these yeah. cases. But to say it's the most stolen book, like, that's young people. <laughs> <laughs> like, your mom didn't steal the book from the library for you, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, yeah, I love that. So I'm curious, why do you think that this book is so popular like why do you think it would be on a high school curriculum because really when i was reading it and thinking about how emily prefaced it i realized that this is probably their anna green gables yeah i could see that well i was going to ask you about some of the context in australia because i don't want to misspeak my understanding from just like popular imagery and the limited reading that i've done all of my australian literature experience is basically confined to like graduate classes in post-colonial studies Okay. So mostly books about Indigenous and immigrant experiences in Australia. Right. So my understanding from that very limited context is that Australia is much newer to the idea of coping with the notion of multiculturalism than Canada. So yes. for historical context for our listeners, Canada entrenched multiculturalism as official government policy in the early 70s so like multiculturalism as like a political policy started here so our literature has been very profoundly shaped by that insistence even insofar as like grants for who gets to write books and what version of canada those books celebrate Mm -hmm. is very rooted in an immigrant narrative Mm -hmm. often 
Yes. You know, and like I took tons of courses in as part of a Calent degree on multiculturalism and the the quote unquote ethnic novel and all this kind of stuff. So I know that history here. And just from what I've read, which is very limited, that history seems to have started much more recently in terms of a national sort of conversation about what multiculturalism is going to look like. That conversation mm-hmm. seems to be more recent in Australia. Like I can't imagine a term like an ethnic or wog in Canada in 1993. Yeah. So it's interesting. I have anecdotal evidence. So from the time that I was living in Australia, it was a very fascinating time because I was living there during a political election, which if anyone is ever considering living abroad in another country- Do it during an election. Do it during an election because you really start to see the issues that a nation or a country is going through because they'll prioritize particular issues or policies or problems. And obviously, I lived there far later than when Melina Marchetta was writing this. So I Mm -hmm. lived there in 2013, not in 1992. But uh, the issues involving racism and immigration and who was quote unquote Australian was still very much prominent in 2013. So interesting. So at the time, the issue was not about Italian immigrants coming into the country. That conversation had shifted to people from Pacific uh, countries. So more Asian immigrants. Right. And at the time, the issue was very much how to put this. So People were fleeing from their home country to try to come to Australia seeking a better life. So they were refugees and they had piled illegally onto boats and were trying to make it to the Australian mainland. Mm -hmm. And one of the most contentious issues in the political election that I was observing was what to do with these quote unquote boat people. Right. So they were not people coming from these other countries. So we didn't say these are people coming from the Philippines and they're fleeing from certain types of political suppression or, you know, if they were in danger. It was very much like, how do we keep those people from coming to our country? And they actually developed an entire policy where they redirected these people to an island that they had made a deal with and they were imprisoned there. I watched a documentary Very about that similarly place. to what the U.S. has done to people trying to come from Mexico. And I want to be clear, like, I don't want anybody to think I have like a Pollyanna-ish view of Canada in this mm-hmm. regard. Like we, I mean. We are not much better. No, and a couple of years before the election that Joe was describing in Australia, we were having a conversation about whether or not we should have a barbaric cultural practices hotline in mm-hmm. this country. Luckily, that party got banished to the political wilderness for a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are these are not geographically specific no. issues, but they are something that I think reinforces this idea that when we're talking about I realize I use these interchangeably just a couple moments ago, but when we talk about the nation, Mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. it's a fabricated concept Mm -hmm. that is traditionally defined by those in power Mm -hmm. or the majority, Mm -hmm. and it's used as... A club to bludgeon people with? (laughs) It's a barrier for entry, right? You are not us. You are not welcome. And what we see in immigrant and multicultural narratives is often people who are struggling to reconcile their national identity Mm -hmm. as to whether or not they are a recognized or valued member of a particular national state, right? 
I think what really struck me reading this book is the way in which Josie articulates that outsider-ness and the way in which it is imposed on her by her classmates and stuff. Like, I think that in many ways, in a broader North American context, ethnic identities like Italian, Polish, Ukrainian, Mm -hmm. even more broadly speaking, like Jewish, those are identities that had by the 90s been widely subsumed into a more general whiteness. Yes. And, And in North America, anyway, the distinctions have been I would say since the 80s at least, 70s and 80s at least, the distinctions have been much more clearly framed around who gets to be in the club of whiteness and who doesn't and using whiteness as like an in-group to keep others out. Mm -hmm. And so I was sort of fascinated to see the book written in 1993 where the the quote-unquote Anglo-Australians, as she calls them, don't see the Italian... Australians as white. I mean, mm-hmm. that's something that I associate with. Um, so there's an Italian Canadian author, Frank Patchy, who was writing in the 60s and 70s. Like those are the kinds of narratives I remember reading in a sort of a historical view of multicultural fiction kind of class that would have been written in the 60s and 70s and looking back historically, not in the 90s and writing in a contemporary fashion. I found mm-hmm. that part of it fascinating. The idea that Italian Australians were being othered as recently as 1990, the 1990s, I found staggering. Yeah, there's an exchange with Poison Ivy where Josie, they kind of clap back at each other. And so Poison Ivy dismisses her as like, oh, well, you're not really Australian. You're, she calls her a demeaning slur. And Josie comes back and says, well, you know, at least my parents came here, <laughs> or at least my family came here, you know, as immigrants, your family came here on the prison boats, because of course, Australia has the historical legacy of being a prison colony that mm-hmm. was established by the British. Mm-hmm. So I I love this idea that part of Josie's Well, her pride in her identity, like she's she's discovering reasons to be proud of her identity, even those things that set her apart from mm-hmm the mass culture, I guess. Yeah. And I love it too, because like you read it and this idea that her grandmother has spies who are keeping tabs on everyone in the family and you can't do anything without getting discovered and the cultural currency of being an Italian and how Josie struggles with it, but also loves it. And I love that interplay where you want to break free of it. But the minute that somebody else says, oh, well, you're this and you're like, don't insult my heritage. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I will do that if I choose to, but don't you dare do that to me. And if it's a good moment to transition to the film, I think part of what gets lost in the film is that it plays those moments for laughs Mm -hmm. rather than letting them be just part of the the nuance and the rhythm of Josie's life, if that makes sense. Like I felt for the whole first 20 minutes of the movie, like sometimes I couldn't tell if we were laughing at these people or learning about them. And I, that bothered me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's play the trailer and then we'll get into it. From the best-selling novel, Looking for Alibrandi. I'm surrounded by girls whose fathers treat them like princesses. Comes the story of a girl growing up in two worlds. And I was having such a bad hair day. Give me a fuckish. I don't belong anywhere and I hate it. What is it with wolves? But between the life she knows. The wolves marry the wolves and the North Shore marry the North Shore. And the life she wishes she had is a boy she wants 
and another who wants her. I didn't think you'd be the type to come to one of these. Do you want to go out? You'd have to meet my mother. Does this boy have a car? No. Good. All right. So the film is from the year 2000, and we have a female director, Brenna. So this is Yay. the directorial debut of Kate Woods, who I was happy to see has actually gone on to become a very active TV director here in North America. Nice. So she got a lot of accolades. She was even nominated for a. Uh, the equivalent of the Australian Best Director for this. She did not win that award, although the film itself did win five Australian Film Institute Awards, wow. including Best Film, Lead Actress, Supporting Actress, Adapted Screenplay, and Editing. So uh, not too darn shabby. Not too darn shabby at all. Mm-hmm. So interestingly enough, the screenplay was written by Melina Marchetta herself. Oh, which interesting. I thought was interesting because there are a number of creative choices that I don't, I don't like. Love. <laughs> and it's always interesting when you see someone adapting their own work because you can see the compromises that have to be made in the adaptation process. So yeah. we may not have liked them, but I'll confess that I feel like they would have gone down smoother had we watched the film first and then read the book or not read the book at all yes i agree completely like i don't think you would be bothered by the ending if you just happened to watch this film no i think it would be exactly the ending you expected if you were just watching the film yeah greta scacci as christina anthony lapaggia as michael andretti josie's father kick gurry as jacob elena cotta as katia Matthew Newton as John Barton, and Leanna Walsman as Carly, who is the character that has been changed from Poison Ivy or Ivy in the book. Okay. Would you, would any of our listeners recognize any of these actors from things over here? So the adults are well known. So okay. Greta Scacchi has had a fairly prolific career. And then the biggest well-known person is Anthony LaPagia. Oh, okay. He looks yeah. familiar to me. Yeah, interestingly enough, Kit Gurry, so the the actor who plays Jacob, has appeared in a bunch of reasonable sized things. Like he he's appeared in a lot of action movies that shoot in Australia, and he had a secondary character role in Sensate, the Wachowski sisters multinational, like world expanding <laughs> kind of Netflix series about people who have a shared connection across the world. Oh, okay. Because I saw him and was like, uh, aside from that soul patch, this actor looks very familiar. Yes. <laughs> I also, I guess, I mean, Anthony LaPaglia? Pa Paglia? Um, I think Paglia. Paglia. Yeah. Um, he's obviously like somebody who has acted a lot, but he also looks a lot like a low-rent Liam Neeson. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can see it. <laughs> so just to wrap out the introduction of the film, it should be noted that this film was incredibly successful. So it grossed $8.3 million in Australia. And for comparison, because Canada and Australia both had sort of struggling national cinemas, yeah. we take a lot of pride in creating homegrown talent, but it doesn't always mean that we find financial success or mm -hmm. commercial success. So for comparison's sake, the top grossing Canadian film that was not a co-production, because Canada does a lot of those. Mm -hmm. So in the year 2000, the most successful Canadian film was MVP, or Most Valuable Primate. Primate, yeah. And that grossed $1.25 million, and that gross was enough to spawn a franchise. 
They film all those in Fort Langley, B.C. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, and in case people don't know, that is about a chimpanzee who plays basketball. Not one of Canada's proudest cinematic moments. that's from the title. (laughs) But uh, a potentially better comparison from that year is the East Coast film New Waterford Girl, (gasps) which uh, is great, yeah. But that film made $775,000. So compare that to Looking for Ella Brandy's $8.3 million. Yeah. Obviously, that film was huge. Yeah, that's a really interesting point of comparison, too. And it's Mm -hmm. interesting, too, because they clearly went to thoughtful effort to make sure that they cast... Italians? Well, yeah, Australian, Italian, Australians in the roles. I thought that was really cool, right? It's like... I really appreciated it. It's like an... I was sort of expecting to see like some large looming like Italian-American actor figure parachuted in for one of the roles, like maybe a parent Mm -hmm. role or something, putting on like a bad Australian accent. But like, because that's that would be what would happen in Canada as a way to draw audience. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. So I'd like to take up your point about the cultural stereotypes and whether or not they get played for laugh, because I don't entirely disagree with you, but I was thinking about the portrayal of ethnic people and how one of the biggest co-productions of the year 2000, if I'm remembering correctly, was My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Oh, that's right. So part of me was thinking, well, yes, they're not great in looking for Ala Brandy, but at least they're not my big fat Greek wedding. No, that's a fair point. <laughs> I just felt like um, I'm thinking of the opening scene, like it's tomato day in the opening scene, which comes a lot later in the book. Yes. It's used as a framing device. It's used as a framing device as like the beginning and end of her year uh, instead of using her birthday. And mm-hmm. I thought that it was just... I don't know, in the opening scene, and part of it is she is not comfortable in her identity at that opening, and I do get that, but I felt like it was like, it was a bit heavy-handed with the look at these goofy Italians. Oh, very much so. Like, these wackadoodles are out here stomping tomatoes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you're kind of like, okay, so I get it. It's very much a visual signifier right off the bat. Hey, in case you didn't know, we are telling an Italian story. Yes. Yeah, I didn't love that i will say that i got a hearty chuckle out of some of the more whimsical over-the-top comedy early on and so i mentioned the idea of loving how her grandmother has spies so i loved the visual depiction of that where there's a bunch of old ladies in black with dark sunglasses stalking josie as she walks down the street and they're like hopping in cars and like taking her picture (laughs) I would say that that was very well done, and it was a nice piece. I think, and in fairness to the film, I think that tone is hard to strike, right? To be able to show that happening visually and not go for over-the-top gags is, is hard to do. It's a lot to ask of a film. It is, and one of the things that I really enjoyed is that that happens early in the film to kind of cue you, yes, this is a little bit silly, it is comedy, And then as the film gets more serious and Josie becomes more adult, we actually see all of those elements fall away. So we don't see the brief bits of animation. We don't see those more satirical over-the-top comedy pieces. Mm -hmm. It actually settles into a more mature, quote-unquote mature YA text as she becomes more adult. She leaves those things behind. Yes, I agree with you. And I think that it should have some credit for that. I think my problem is that it set the tone so strongly straight off. Yes. Yeah, it's almost a little off-putting. I struggled to let go of the tone even after the film had, if that makes sense. Interesting. Okay. I didn't like the way they handled John Barton's suicide. 
Okay, I I really did want to get into that because I think it's a huge focal point of the book. Yes. I'm not sure if you would agree with the statement. I felt like it happens too early. Early! That's exactly what I was going to say. It happens too early. It's very odd though. So this is an hour and 38 minute movie. John Barton's suicide happens, I clocked it, at minute 52. Yep. It felt like it happens about a half an hour into the movie though. It does. And it's, for me, that's a problem because... Mm -hmm. What works so well in the book with John Barton is that we have so much time to get to know him. Yes. We have so much time to be in our minds set up for uh, a typical YA love triangle and we're mm -hmm. weighing him against Jacob and we have all these opportunities to do that in the book. We get very little of that in the film. There's a couple of very cute moments with John Barton and I found him quite human in the way he was depicted. Yes, Matthew Newton does a, a really good job of playing the likable, successful boy that really does present as though everything is going his way. He does, but I looked it up and he's super problematic. Oh no, is he? Yeah. Crap. He's like abused a girlfriend and like uh, beat up a hotel employee and a oh, whole bunch great. of stuff. He was hospitalized for some psychiatric issues around the same time as that stuff was happening. But like I was reading mm. about how Jessica Chastain picked him for a project she's working on and she got uh -huh. roundly like we thought you supported Time's Up. What are you doing working with this monster kind of thing? Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Just, just for context. Because um, right. I do like him in this role. Like, I think that he yeah. is very human and gentle. There's a scene where he he spends a lot more of the movie saying goodbye than he does the book. So, like, there's a this couple of scenes where she sees him in the film. She sees him, like, standing at a subway platform. And he mm -hmm. all for all the world looks like if she hadn't said hi to him right there, he would have jumped. Yeah. Um, He's but, often framed as being isolated or yes. like he's in a group of people who are talking and he's not talking or he's choosing not to engage so there's a moment where she basically she she kind of alludes that she would like him to drive her home and he just gives her a kiss on the cheek and walks away and leaves yeah but there's a really sweet moment where she catches up with him i guess they're touring the university that they both intend to go to and he very sweetly says to her like oh how's my competition doing like meaning jacob and there's something very gentle and kind and warm about him i would have liked more of those moments before his suicide so that i could yes. get connected to him mm -hmm. and then the problem is that when jacob makes a very uncharitable remark about matthew in the book it happens one week after his suicide and it's it's so too soon. It's so too soon. In the film, it happens three months after his suicide, and it's Well, and confusing. that's because this film literally has the suicide, which, you know, again, we get the heartbreaking scene where Josie doesn't believe Ivy, mm -hmm. who is crying in the hall, and then she has to sit her HSCs, and then... It just shows her writing in her diary and she says it's been three months. But she also, she gets a lot more time between the suicide and the exams in the film. Like yes. it's not, it's not like, okay, well, you just got this news, turn around and go right in, go run in and write that exam. Like they have a whole yeah. school day of mourning. They yeah. have like all the school attends the funeral. It seems to happen at the school in a very odd setting yeah. choice. That may have been a financial constraint. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, So I thought that, on the one hand, it makes it too big of a centerpiece of the film. And at the same time, it allows her too much time to get over it almost. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to describe it. The way the, f the book works temporally with the suicide is just so interesting and so nothing I've seen before that yeah. I was sad to give it up in the film. 
Yeah, and it really does feel kind of like the film says, okay, well, this is now done. Yeah, Let's focus on the relationship that she has with her father. And it even buries the revelation that she has with her grandmother. Yes, it does. Because the book does a really good job of continually bringing up the challenges that Josie has with her grandmother and how the relationship has been between her mother and her grandmother. So she makes tentative inroads throughout the course of the book and is very much informed with the burgeoning relationship she has with her father, but also the way that she's afraid to introduce Jacob to her grandmother because she knows that her grandmother will not accept a boy who is not Italian. We don't get any of that in the film. <laughs> in the film, Nona and uh, and Jacob are doing the twist at the end of the movie. Yeah. The... I was like, Raleigh, Raleigh. <laughs> I found I really quite liked the first half of the film. I find the suicide is the turning point. And after that, something about the presentation of time and the way that it manages to juggle the competing or complementary storylines doesn't work quite as well for me i actually found myself losing interest in the film i did too it just doesn't feel as compelling even though i think everyone's doing a good job and i really want to give a shout out to pia miranda because i think she's absolutely captivating she's a perfect josie in this she captures all of the innocence the self-doubt but also she's spunky and she's fiery like i love the scene And again, it doesn't work temporally, but the scene where she gives it to Ivy, in this case, Carly, with the textbook and she breaks her nose. And then she has to do that turn on a dime where she's very indignant because, yes, she has a father. And no, she doesn't know his number because he just moved from Adelaide. And, (laughs) you know, I knew that number and it was 85521, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I really think that she is the, like, she is just a standout star in a film that is a little bit too messy in the back half to be compelling yes yeah it almost feels like you can see the worry in the adaptation like this is a classic and it's melina marchetta saying i've got to get this right yes i agree with that but she doesn't quite nail it yeah even though the performers are really giving it everything that they've got it just doesn't quite come together and then we get to that ending (sighs) dance party I know that you and I are going to fixate on this a little bit more to the extent that I think even Emily said, I'm just going to warn them about this. (laughs) They're not going to like it. (laughs) I hate the fact that she is still with Jacob. I I hate it. I loathe the fact that she is still with Jacob. It's my favorite thing about the film is that it's brave enough to not insist on that ending. Oh, the book. Or sorry, the book. Yes. The thing I love about the book is that it's brave enough to not insist on uh, on a traditional ending. Mm-hmm. because they are not right for each other and that's okay like in the book one of the things that frustrates me in the until i knew that they weren't going to end up together is that like he's not always very kind to her sometimes no. he is but sometimes he's quite awful and mm-hmm. and you know in fairness to him he's just a teenage boy right like yeah. he's just a teenage boy who's a bit of a screw-up and he's scared to be with someone who maybe is going to be more accomplished than him like that spooks him out Mm-hmm. And I think that that's okay, yeah. but I don't want him her to end up with that boy. 
Well, no, because you can see so much of their relationship in the book is about her compromising the things that are important to her, even yes. when she sometimes also resents it. So yes. she wants him to come in and present himself well to her mother because she knows that this is important, even though she herself is kind of like, "Guh, mom, like, I don't want you to date this other guy, even though he's seemingly perfect for you. Yeah. Josie is fallible in that way, right? Like she wants things her way, but not for other people. Yeah. So when he shows up and he has put in no effort to appeasing her mother by being presentable, she's embarrassed and ashamed. And then she kind of gets over it because she's like, well, but wouldn't it be nice to go on a date with this boy and maybe have a kiss and mm -hmm. all these other things? And that plays really well in the book, that push mm -hmm. and pull that she mm -hmm. has with Jacob. Mm -hmm. In the film, he's kind of like a rough scallion. Yeah. He's not bad. Like, he's never bad. No. But he's never good. He's just kind of a bit of the bad boy. It'd be great if he put on a shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he literally, in the film, he seems to go everywhere in like uh, one of those thin like white tank tops. Mm -hmm. It's just like, just put on a shirt. I don't understand. It doesn't look like it's that hot. Most of the time, she's fully dressed. <laughs> Brenna, it's Australia. It's very hot. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else could put on a shirt. Why can't he put on a shirt? <laughs> Is he allergic to shirts? <laughs> A little bit. I mean, I think, again, this is bad a visual boy. cue. I know. He's a bad that, boy. Yeah, he's a bit of a bad boy. That and the he, stupid soul patch. He doesn't patch. know how to dress up. The soul patch is terrible, but it's <laughs> also so appropriate for the 90s. Yes, it is. Not going to lie. I had a soul patch for a lot of the 90s and into the early 2000s. Oh, Joe. Oh, Joe. You knew me when I had it, Brenna. <laughs> In it's my memory, look, I photoshopped I it off apologize. your face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, but this idea that the film ends... Okay, there's actually one other part that I hate that the film does. Do it. Which is that she finds out the truth about hmm. her grandmother. Mm -hmm. So in the grand scheme of things, her grandmother had an affair. Yep, so hot one. her husband was away and affair. she had an affair, a very yeah. hot affair, with an Australian man. And she couldn't be with this man even though she got pregnant with mm -hmm. Christina because she knew what it would do culturally to Christina's life. Mm -hmm. It was a no-win situation, but the better decision was to stay with her husband. Who's, by the way, suffer. awful. Like, the husband so, is awful. awful. Yes. But it all makes sense. And yes, it, it becomes the thing that unites Josie with her grandmother it's a secret that mm -hmm. they have. Mm -hmm. It's something that her mother doesn't need to know about because it would only hurt her. Mm -hmm. But it explains so much to Josie about why her grandmother is the way she is. And it actually makes her love her. Yes, it does. It makes her realize that like she's tried, right? Yeah. And that like she's fallible and that she's made mistakes, but that she has yeah. tried. And I love the scene where the grandmother says, like, I was pretty. I wanted to be pretty. I wanted yeah. someone to love me. And it's very powerful when you think about it in parallel to John Barton's family, mm -hmm. where the only person who's expected to sacrifice in John Barton's family is John Barton. And that's yeah. why they lose him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it it's a secret that stays secret in yes. the book. Whereas in the film, Josie stomps up. It's timed with really aggressively comedic music yes. like dun 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 yes. and then she goes in she has her breakdown with her grandmother and then she just says you have to tell my mom yeah and then we just cut to a scene of her mom being there and I then feel like I kind of always knew. And she just finds out and you're like no no you didn't I don't understand why this needed to come out no so then we've got this ending this 
pat on the back, perfect, everything's going to be fine ending where Jacob is still around and he's meeting the grandmother and it's not an issue and Christine is okay. I don't know if our listeners can really conceptualize without watching it, but the ending involves somebody putting on an Italian version of the twist and everybody dancing together Mm -hmm. at length. Yeah. To the point where even Josie's friends, who yeah. have never interacted in the nope. movie with her family never in once. any capacity, Mm-mm. are invited to come in and participate in this all-encompassing Italian ritual. And it just doesn't work. And Jacob and Nona meet for the very first time. They shake hands. And then in the next scene, they're literally doing the twist together. Yeah. It's so false. It's it the, rings it's very stupid. so false to me. Again, Emily prefaces this by saying, I think they did this to give it that happy ending totally that agree. satisfies for a film, I can see it, but it doesn't ring true to me at all. No, especially after reading the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm actually reminded of a Canadian text. We can't do it because it's actually, it'd be probably considered mm-hmm. new adult, mm-hmm. but uh, Mambo Italiano was oh, a very yeah. successful play that got turned into a Canadian film. It's about a gay Italian man who has a secret affair with another man and he lives in worry, constant worry that his very overbearing Italian family is going to find out. Yes. And the play ends with him attending his first pride parade by himself. And he is broken up with this man because he was not a good fit in the same way that Jacob is not a good fit. Mm-hmm. And in the movie version, they all have like a big celebratory party. So my question here is, is it really that audiences can't handle these kinds of endings? Or is it that we make assumptions about what audiences can't handle? And I'm especially thinking about it in the case of something like Mambo Italiano, which was never going to be a blockbuster wide success. It was always going to be attended to by people who like national cinema, by -hmm. people who are interested in challenging storylines, by Mm -hmm. a sort of art house cinema crowd. I don't understand why these films end up with the pat endings. It makes no sense to me. Well, I think the idea is that if you give it to them, if you give the pat ending, you are far more likely to be more broadly embraced by a larger audience. The thing with these films, in the case of both Mambo Italiano and Looking for Alibrandi, they are one of probably only a handful of films that a nation will put out, right? So... In a way, these films are like the favorite child where we only have X amount of dollars. We only have so many films that are going to be put out. These films have to succeed because this is the only Italian film that we will get this year, maybe in five years. So you can't afford to take the risk of having the couple break up or the family not fully come around on this romantic prospect, or the person not having everything be happy. Because if that doesn't connect, you've lost potentially millions of dollars. I guess, but I feel like I spend more time hearing, maybe it's just the audience, the circles I run in and the people I follow on Twitter, but like, I feel Mm. like I hear more complaints about too easy endings in these kinds of films than I do about complicated ones. Particularly when... I would argue both of these films are trying to tell slightly subverting storylines. Yeah. A little bit risky, a little bit challenging because they're already outside of the norm, right? Yeah, yeah. They're telling an alternative storyline. So they're going slightly outside of the norm already. Well, that's what I mean. Like the audience that's coming to this movie doesn't need a happy ending necessarily, do they? 
You would think that temptation to wrap things up with a bow and treat it like a fairy tale just seems so all-encompassing for these particular kinds of films, right? Like, we've seen it in YA so often. It's true. And I will say that when I have shown my classes films that do not end that way, Mm -hmm. it has not always gone over well. No. Like, I used to teach Hardcore Logo which is a poetry book for people who don't know. It's a, it's a book of poetry, but it's the, telling the story of a punk band that is getting back together after some time apart. Mm-hmm. And I show them the film version. And the film version, it has a very ambiguous ending that involves a gunshot. And right. students are across the board pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? What happened? What was the result? And that's a film that makes the decision to be far more ambiguous in its ending than the book was. Right. Or like I used to show The Hanging Garden in my class, which is talk about oh, queer Canadian that. cinema classic. Beautiful so film, but also mm-hmm. incredibly sad ending. And yes. Yeah. It doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. That's fair. I hadn't really thought, I hadn't put those two things together. The weird thing is, though, is that if you look at the history of Canadian and Australian film, because it is in a way rooted in our national identities, mm-hmm. I can unabashedly say this with Canada, Australia, I'm slightly less confident in saying it. We tend to have unhappy endings. It's actually part of our national identity that we traffic in these kinds of stories. So it feels even more disingenuous when you try to tack on the, and then everybody lived happily ever after. Well, it's interesting because like, so, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to do this on our podcast, but (laughs) Deleuze and Guattari have this theory of the minor literature, right? And it's not necessarily like a minority literature. It's just like a minor literature. So like, I think of Canadian literature as a minor literature because it's linguistically the same as American and British literature, but Mm -hmm. it's in a minor context. Right. Like we're small fish in a big pond. Yeah, exactly. And always writing back to that. And I um, imagine Australian literatures find themselves in the same place mm-hmm. and one of the things that Deleuze and Guattari argue is that a minor literature has to always subvert the expectation because right. it's always writing against the expectation and so I think that's why our cinema and our literature tends to be dark and very challenging and resists happy endings it's also a way of distinguishing ourselves yes. from the majority, right? Like, yes. we are not Hollywood. Yes. So we don't tell those kinds of stories. Yes. But then when we do see them, I mean, I remember one of the complaints that was leveled at Mambo Italiano specifically was this idea that it's like you gave it a Hollywood ending. Yeah, that's like the biggest insult in Canadian cinema, is it not? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a great one. But at the same time, you're right. We are coming from particular specific circles like art house cinema queer backgrounds and so on i can't help but think that there's a larger population of regular quote-unquote regular people Mm -hmm. going to the cinema saying you know what i want to check out this cute looking for ella brandy film it's a film about an italian australian girl just trying to find her way through her final year of high school oh look she gets a boyfriend, she makes reparations with her grandmother, and everything ends up happy. They better Isn't kiss. Isn't that delightful? <laughs> yeah. You're probably right. I don't know. In any case, Should we do some the YA film bingo? was incredibly successful. Yeah, and let's do some YA bingo. <laughs> bingo! Not a good bingo. All right. Okay. I feel like this is going to go well. I think so, too. So here are mine. Okay. Uh, rich people problems. In what way? John's entire family. Yes. Should we tack on some abuse to go with that? Yes, some abuse. Emotional abuse, if nothing else. We've got a sexual awakening. Mm Mm-hmm. 
That bedroom scene alone. I know, my God. Um, it was uncomfortable in the film, eh? I found it quite uncomfortable. But like in a well-done fashion. In a well-done fashion, but he's he's more insistent in the film than he comes across to me in the book. Yeah. Uh, and I was I had my breath in my throat for a second there. Yep. Um, I'm going to say love triangle. Okay. I'm going to say acerbic wit. Mm-hmm. Because Josie is just sharp as hell. She really is. And I'm hemming and hawing about perfect date because I'm not sure she ever actually ends up going on one. But she does have that lovely... In the film, I mean, she has that moment where she gets the dress and she yes. goes and she has the The dance. dress is so much nicer in the film than it so was in the book. So much nicer, yeah. And then it seems unfair to Jacob, and but he's kind of a mediocre white boy. He is, a little yeah. bit, yeah. yeah. Which is why it's so good in the book that she kind of kicks him to the curb. Yes. Well, she gets kicked to the curb, but she accepts it in the book. <laughs> right, yeah. Okay, I'm going to add in slutty secondary character because oh, we've not really talked about her, but Sarah is rather forthright about her sexual proclivities. Yeah, she is. I like that she's unapologetic about it, though. Me too. We could put in some unlikely friendships considering it's repeatedly mentioned in the book that she and her friends don't actually have that much in common except for the fact that they are all outsiders. Yes, we also have a dead parent because oh, Jacob's yeah. mother Jacob's is mother. not around. You're and right. it kind of shapes almost every interaction that he has with women. Yep. And then I'm going to do one final bit. I'm going to say Nona's doing some gaslighting when it comes to <gasps> yes. telling the story about everything to do with the Alibrandi family. Absolutely. Yes. Ag agreed. 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 Yeah. The only other one I maybe had was musicality with the way that they use With or Without You for John oh. Barton's funeral in the film, but that doesn't seem quite right compared to the way we tend to use it. No, I agree. And there's so much egregious musicality in the film. This is true. So let's skip that one. Okay. Okay. Just for those playing at home, that's two lines, folks. Both Did we the get two I lines? as well as the third row. Yeah. Bingo! Go us! Mm-hmm. Look at you looking for Alibrandi. I actually, when I finished the book, I thought, this is such a masterful inclusion of so many YA tropes, but in a way that doesn't feel ham-fisted or heavy-handed. Yep, it's true. It's beautifully done. The book is beautifully done. Go find the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's a little difficult to track down. Outside of Australia, it's just not that well-known, so mm -hmm. it's hard to find, but it's stronger current. Yes. Okay, folks, so if you want to get a hold of us and uh, let us know your thoughts about looking for Alibrandi, or if you've got some pitch ideas for minisodes in the future, you can find us on the Twitters, hashtag HKHSPod. Joe, if they want to find you, where do they go? You can find me at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray, that's Gray with an A. And of course, if you've got something longer you'd like to send us, I'm not going to ask for looking for Alibrandi fanfiction, although if it exists, I am curious. HKHSPod at gmail.com. And mm -hmm. next week, you've got a mini-sode coming at you with our February picks, so get your hold lists ready. Indeed. And the week after that, we are reading... I'm going to insistently say this for the entire episode, so get ready. <laughs> Zed for Zachariah. Yeah, it's Zed time to go Zachariah. back to the dystopia, Brenna. Yes, but I'm kind of excited because I haven't read any 70s sci-fi in a very long time. It's interesting. I read this a couple of years ago and I quite liked it. And as I teased at the end of our last minisode, the film takes a very different direction. 
I'm excited, and also I already have Devin on deck because I said that the movie looked scary and he might have to watch it with me, so. Yeah, it's, uh, it's tense. Yeah, I don't like tense. Okay. <laughs> so that's in two weeks. We'll be looking at Zed for Zachariah, and then, yeah, next week, Minnesota. Fabulous. February picks. And uh, in case you're still following at home, make sure that you're staying up to date on Sex Ed, because that's <gasps> oh, the yes. following Minnesota after the that. following Minnesota. That reminds me that I should watch Sex Ed. Okay, um, so... <laughs> Until next time, listeners, I shall see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye.